Yui, 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 goes the refrain. A million deaths were not enough for Yui. From A Child's History of Muad'Dib by the Princess Irulan. The door stood ajar, and Jessica stepped through into a room with yellow walls. To her left stretched a low settee of black hide and two empty bookcases, a hanging water flask with dust on its bulging sides. To her right, bracketing another door, stood more empty bookcases, a desk from Caladan and three chairs. At the windows directly ahead of her stood Dr. Yui, his back to her, his attention fixed upon the outside world. Jessica took another silent step into the room. She saw that Ewer's coat was wrinkled, a white smudge near the left elbow as though he had leaned against chalk. He looked, from behind, like a fleshless stick figure in overlarge black clothing, a caricature poised for stringy movement at the direction of a puppet master. Only the squarish block of head, with long ebony hair caught in its silver sook-school ring at the shoulder, seemed alive, turning slightly to follow some movement outside. Again she glanced around the room, seeing no sign of her son, but the closed door on her right, she knew, led into a small bedroom for which Paul had expressed a liking. Good afternoon, Dr. Yui. Where's Paul? He nodded as though to something out the window, spoke in an absent manner without turning. Your son grew tired, Jessica. I sent him into the next room to rest. Abruptly he stiffened, whirled with moustache flopping over his purpled lips. Forgive me, my lady. My thoughts were far away. I did not mean to be familiar. She smiled, held out her right hand. For a moment she was afraid he might kneel. Wellington, please. To use your name like that, I... We've known each other six years. It's long past time formality should have been dropped between us in private. Yui ventured a thin smile, thinking, I believe it has worked. Now she'll think anything unusual in my manner is due to embarrassment. She'll not look for deeper reasons when she believes she already knows the answer. I'm afraid I was wool-gathering. Whenever I feel especially sorry for you, I'm afraid I think of you as, well, Jessica. Sorry for me, whatever for. Yui shrugged. Long ago he had realized Jessica was not gifted with a full truth, say, as his Juana had been. Still, he always used the truth with Jessica whenever possible. It was safest. You've seen this place, my Jessica. So barren after Caledon. And the people. Those townswomen we passed on the way here, wailing beneath their veils the way they looked at us. She folded her arms across her breast, hugging herself, feeling the Chris knife there, a blade ground from a sandworm's tooth, if the reports were right. It's just that we're strange to them, different people, different customs. They've known only the Harkonnens. She looked past him out the windows. What were you staring at out there? The people. Jessica crossed to his side looked to the left toward the front of the house where Ewer's attention was focused. A line of twenty palm trees grew there. The ground beneath them swept clean, barren. A screen fence separated them from the road upon which robed people were passing. 
Jessica detected a faint shimmering in the air between her and the people, a house shield, and went on to study the passing throng, wondering why Yui found them so absorbing. The pattern emerged, and she put a hand to her cheek. The way the passing people looked at the palm trees. She saw envy, some hate, even a sense of hope. Each person raked those trees with a fixity of expression. Do you know what they're thinking? You profess to read minds? Those minds. They look at those trees and they think, there are one hundred of us. That's what they think. Why? Those are date palms. One date palm requires forty liters of water a day. A man requires but eight liters. A palm, then, equals five men. There are twenty palms out there, one hundred men. But some of those people look at the trees hopefully. They but hope some dates will fall. Except it's the wrong season. We look at this place with too critical an eye. There's hope as well as danger here. The spice could make us rich. With a fat treasury, we can make this world into whatever we wish. And she laughed silently at herself. Who am I trying to convince? The laugh broke through her restraints, emerging brittle, without humor. <laughs> but you can't buy security. Yui turned away to hide his face from her. If only it were possible to hate these people instead of love them. In her manner, in many ways, Jessica was like his wanna. Yet that thought carried its own rigors, hardening him to his purpose. The ways of the Harkonnen cruelty were devious. Wanna might not be dead. He had to be certain. Do not worry for us, Wellington. The problem's ours, not yours. She thinks I worry for her. He blinked back tears. And I do, of course. But I must stand before that black baron with his deed accomplished, and take my one chance to strike him where he is weakest, in his gloating moment. He sighed. Would it disturb Paul if I looked in on him? Not at all. I gave him a sedative. He's taking the change well. Except for getting a bit overtired. He's excited. But what fifteen-year-old wouldn't be under these circumstances? He's in here. He crossed to the door, opened it. Jessica followed, peered into a shadowy room. Paul lay on a narrow cot, one arm beneath a light cover, the other thrown back over his head. Slatted blinds at a window beside the bed wove a loom of shadows across face and blanket. Jessica stared at her son, seeing the oval shape of face so like her own. But the hair was the duke's, coal-coloured and tousled. Long lashes concealed the lime-toned eyes. Jessica smiled, feeling her fears retreat. She was suddenly caught by the idea of genetic traces in her son's features, her lines in eyes and facial outline. But sharp touches of the father peering through that outline like maturity emerging from childhood. She thought of the boy's features as an exquisite distillation out of random patterns, endless cues of happenstance meeting at this nexus. The thought made her want to kneel beside the bed and take her son in her arms, 
but she was inhibited by Yui's presence. She stepped back, closed the door softly. Yui had returned to the window, unable to bear watching the way Jessica stared at her son. Why did Wana never give me children? he asked himself. I know as a doctor there was no physical reason against it. Was there some Bene Gesserit reason? Was she perhaps instructed to serve a different purpose? What could it have been? She loved me, certainly. For the first time he was caught up in the thought that he might be part of a pattern more involuted and complicated than his mind could grasp. Jessica stopped beside him. What delicious abandon in the sleep of a child. If only adults could relax like that. Yes. Where do we lose it? She glanced at him, catching the odd tone, but her mind was still on Paul, thinking of the new rigors in his training here, thinking of the differences in his life now, so very different from the life they once had planned for him. We do indeed lose something. She glanced out to the right at a slope humped with a wind-troubled grey-green of bushes, dusty leaves and dry claw branches. The too-dark sky hung over the slope like a blot, and the milky light of the Arakeen sun gave the scene a silver cast light, like the Chris knife concealed in her bodice. The sky's so dark. That's partly the lack of moisture. Water! Everywhere you turn here you're involved with the lack of water. It's the precious mystery of Arrakis. Why is there so little of it? There's volcanic rock here. There are a dozen power sources I could name. There's polar ice. They say you can't drill in the desert. Storms and sand tides destroy equipment faster than it can be installed if the worms don't get you first. They've never found water traces there anyway. But the mystery, Wellington, the real mystery is the wells that have been drilled up here in the sinks and basins. Have you read about those? First a trickle, then nothing. But, Wellington, that's the mystery. The water was there. It dries up, and never again is there water. Yet another hole nearby produces the same result, a trickle that stops. Has no one ever been curious about this? It is curious. You suspect some living agency? Wouldn't that have shown in core samples? What would have shown? Alien plant matter? Or animal? Who could recognize it? The water is stopped. Something plugs it. That's my suspicion. Perhaps the reason's known. The Harkonnens sealed off many sources of information about Arrakis. Perhaps there was reason to suppress this. What reason? And then there's the atmospheric moisture. Little enough of it, certainly, but there's some. It's the major source of water here, caught in wind traps and precipitators. Where does that come from? The polar caps? Cold air takes up little moisture, Wellington. There are things here behind the Harkonnen Vale that bear close investigation, and not all of those things are directly involved with the spice. We are indeed behind the Harkonnen Vale. Perhaps we'll... He broke off noting the sudden, intense way she was looking at him. Is something wrong? The way you say Harkonnen. Even my duke's voice doesn't carry that weight of venom when he uses the hated name. I didn't know you had personal reasons to hate them, Wellington. Great mother, he thought. I've aroused her suspicions. Now I must use every trick my wanna taught me.
There's only one solution. Tell the truth as far as I can. You didn't know that my wife, my Wana, they... He shrugged, unable to speak past a sudden constriction in his throat. The words would not come out. He felt panic, closed his eyes tightly, experiencing the agony in his chest and little else, until a hand touched his arm gently. Forgive me. I did not mean to open an old wound. And she thought, those animals. His wife was Bene Gesserit. The signs are all over him. And it's obvious the Harkonnens killed her. Here's another poor victim bound to the Atreides by a cherim of hate. I'm sorry. I am unable to talk about it. He opened his eyes, giving himself up to the internal awareness of grief. That, at least, was truth. Jessica studied him, seeing the up-angled cheeks, the dark sequins of almond eyes, the butter complexion, and stringy moustache hanging like a curved frame around purpled lips and narrow chin. The creases of his cheeks and forehead, she saw, were as much lines of sorrow as of age. A deep affection for him came over her. Wellington, I'm sorry we brought you into this dangerous place. I came willingly. And that, too, was true. But this whole planet's a Harkonnen trap. You must know that. It will take more than a trap to catch the Duke Leto. And that, too, was true. Perhaps I should be more confident of him. He is a brilliant tactician. We've been uprooted. That's why we're uneasy. And how easy it is to kill the uprooted plant, especially when you put it down in hostile soil. Are we certain the soil's hostile? There were water riots when it was learned how many people the Duke was adding to the population. They stopped only when the people learned we were installing new wind traps and condensers to take care of the load. There is only so much water to support human life here. The people know if more come to drink a limited amount of water, the price goes up and the very poor die. But the Duke has solved this. It doesn't follow that the riots mean permanent hostility toward him. And guards, guards everywhere, and shields. You see the blurring of them everywhere you look. We did not live this way on Caledon. Give this planet a chance. But Jessica continued to stare hard-eyed out the window. I can smell death in this place. Howard sent advance agents in here by the battalion. Those guards outside are his men. The cargo handlers are his men. There have been unexplained withdrawals of large sums from the treasury. The amounts mean only one thing. Bribes in high places. Where Thufir Howard goes, death and deceit follow. You malign him. Malign? I praise him. Death and deceit are our only hopes now. I just do not fool myself about Thufir's methods. You should keep busy. Give yourself no time for such morbid... Busy? What is it that takes most of my time, Wellington? I am the Duke's secretary. So busy that each day I learn new things to fear. Things even he doesn't suspect I know. Sometimes I wonder how much my Bene Gesserit business training figured in his choice of me. What do you mean? 
he found himself caught by the cynical tone, the bitterness that he had never seen her expose. Don't you think, Wellington, that a secretary bound to one by love is so much safer? That is not a worthy thought, Jessica. The rebuke came naturally to his lips. There was no doubt how the Duke felt about his concubine. One had only to watch him as he followed her with his eyes. You're right. It's not worthy. Again she hugged herself, pressed the sheathed Chris knife against her flesh, and thinking of the unfinished business it represented. There'll be much bloodshed soon. The Harkonnens won't rest until they're dead or my duke destroyed. The Baron cannot forget that Leto is a cousin of the royal blood, no matter what the distance, while the Harkonnen titles came out of the Chome pocketbook. But the poison in him, deep in his mind, is the knowledge that an Atreides had a Harkonnen banished for cowardice after the Battle of Corin. The old feud. And for a moment he felt an acid touch of hate. The old feud had trapped him in its web, killed his wanna, or, worse, left her for Harkonnen tortures until her husband did their bidding. The old feud had trapped him, and these people were part of that poisonous thing. The irony was that such deadliness should come to flower here on Arrakis, the one source in the universe of melange, the prolonger of life, the giver of health. What are you thinking? I'm thinking that the spice brings 620,000 solaris the decagram on the open market right now. That is wealth to buy many things. Does greed touch even you, Wellington? Not greed. What then? Futility. Can you remember your first taste of spice? It tasted like cinnamon. But never twice the same. It's like life. It presents a different face each time you take it. Some hold that the spice produces a learned flavor reaction. The body, learning a thing is good for it, interprets the flavor as pleasurable, slightly euphoric, and, like life, never to be truly synthesized. I think it would have been wiser for us to go renegade, to take ourselves beyond the Imperial Reach. He saw that she hadn't been listening to him, focused on her words, wondering, yes, why didn't she make him do this? She could make him do virtually anything. He spoke quickly because here was truth and a change of subject. Would you think it bold of me, Jessica, if I asked a personal question? She pressed against the window ledge in an unexplainable pang of disquiet. Of course not. You're my friend. Why haven't you made the Duke marry you? She whirled, head up, glaring. Made him marry me, but... I, I should not have asked. No. There's good political reason. As long as my Duke remains unmarried, some of the great houses can still hope for alliance. And... Motivating people, forcing them to your will, gives you a cynical attitude toward humanity. It degrades everything it touches. If I made him do this, then it would not be his doing. It's a thing my Wana might have said. And this, too, was truth. He put a hand to his mouth, swallowing convulsively. He had never been closer to speaking out, 
confessing his secret role. Jessica spoke, shattering the moment. Besides, Wellington, the Duke is really two men. One of them I love very much. He's charming, witty, considerate, tender, everything a woman could desire. But the other man is cold, callous, demanding, selfish, as harsh and cruel as a winter wind. That's the man shaped by the father. Her face contorted. If only that old man had died when my duke was born. In the silence that came between them, a breeze from a ventilator could be heard fingering the blinds. Presently she took a deep breath. Leto's right. These rooms are nicer than the ones in the other sections of the house. She turned, sweeping the room with her gaze. If you'll excuse me, Wellington, I want another look through this wing before I assign quarters. Of course. He nodded and thought, if only there was some way not to do this thing that I must do. Jessica dropped her arms, crossed to the hall door and stood there a moment, hesitating, then let herself out. All the time we talked, he was hiding something, holding something back, she thought. To save my feelings, no doubt. He's a good man. Again, she hesitated, almost turned back to confront Yui and drag the hidden thing from him. But that would only shame him, frighten him to learn he's so easily read. I should place more trust in my friends. Many have marked the speed with which Muad'Dib learned the necessities of Arrakis. The Bene Gesserit, of course, know the basis of this speed. For the others, we can say that Muad'Dib learned rapidly, because his first training was in how to learn. And the first lesson of all was the basic trust that he could learn. It is shocking to find how many people do not believe they can learn, and how many more believe learning to be difficult. Muad'Dib knew that every experience carries its lesson. From the Humanity of Muad'Dib by the Princess Irulan. Paul lay on the bed, feigning sleep. It had been easy to palm Dr. Ewer's sleeping tablet, to pretend to swallow it. Paul suppressed a laugh. Even his mother had believed him asleep. He had wanted to jump up and ask her permission to go exploring the house, but had realized she wouldn't approve. Things were too unsettled yet. No. This way was best. If I slip out without asking, I haven't disobeyed orders, and I will stay in the house where it's safe. He heard his mother and Yui talking in the other room. Their words were indistinct, something about the spice, the Harkonnens. The conversation rose and fell. Paul's attention went to the carved headboard of his bed, a false headboard attached to the wall, and concealing the controls for this room's functions. A leaping fish had been shaped on the wood with thick, brown waves beneath it. He knew if he pushed the fish's one visible eye, that would turn on the room's suspenser lamps. One of the waves, when twisted, controlled ventilation. Another changed the temperature. Quietly, Paul sat up in bed. A tall bookcase stood against the wall to his left. It could be swung aside to reveal a closet with drawers along one side. The handle on the door into the hall was patterned on an ornithopter thrust bar. It was as though the room had been designed to entice him. The room and this planet. He thought of the film book Yui had shown him, 
Arrakis, his Imperial Majesty's Desert Botanical Testing Station. It was an old film book from before discovery of the spice. Names flitted through Paul's mind, each with its picture imprinted by the book's mnemonic pulse, saguaro, burrowbush, date palm, sand verbena, evening primrose, barrel cactus, incense bush, smoke tree, creosote bush, kit fox, desert hawk, kangaroo mouse, names and pictures, names and pictures from man's tyrannic past, and many to be found now nowhere else in the universe except here on Arrakis. So many new things to learn about, the spice and the sandworms. A door closed in the other room. Paul heard his mother's footsteps retreating down the hall. Dr. Yui, he knew, would find something to read and remain in the other room. Now was the moment to go exploring. Paul slipped out of the bed, headed for the bookcase door that opened into the closet. He stopped at a sound behind him, turned. The carved headboard of the bed was folding down onto the spot where he had been sleeping. Paul froze. The immobility saved his life. From behind the headboard slipped a tiny hunter-seeker, no more than five centimetres long. Paul recognised it at once, a common assassination weapon that every child of royal blood learned about at an early age. It was a ravening sliver of metal, guided by some nearby hand and eye. It could burrow into moving flesh and chew its way up nerve channels to the nearest vital organ. The seeker lifted, swung sideways across the room and back. Through Paul's mind flashed the related knowledge, the hunter-seeker limitations. Its compressed suspensor field distorted the room to reflect his target. The operator would be relying on motion, anything that moved. A shield could slow a hunter, give time to destroy it. But Paul had put aside his shield on the bed. Lasguns would knock them down, but lasguns were expensive and notoriously cranky of maintenance, and there was always the peril of explosive pyrotechnics if the laser beam intersected a hot shield. The Atreides relied on their body shields and their wits. Now, Paul held himself in near catatonic immobility, knowing he had only his wits to meet this threat. The hunter-seeker lifted another half-meter. It rippled through the slatted light from the window blinds, back and forth, quartering the room. I must try to grab it, he thought. The suspensor field will make it slippery on the bottom. I must grip tightly. The thing dropped a half-meter, quartered to the left, circled back around the bed. A faint humming could be heard from it. Who is operating that thing? Paul wondered. It has to be someone near. I could shout for Yui, but it would take him the instant the door opened. The hall door behind Paul creaked. A rap sounded there. The door opened. The hunter-seeker arrowed past his head toward the motion. Paul's right hand shot out and down, gripping the deadly thing. It hummed and twisted in his hand, but his muscles were locked on it in desperation. With a violent turn and thrust, he slammed the thing's nose against the metal doorplate. He felt the crunch of it as the nose eye smashed and the seeker went dead in his hand. Still, he held it, to be certain. 
Paul's eyes came up, met the open stare of total blue from the shadowed mapes. Your father has sent for you. There are men in the hall to escort you. Paul nodded, his eyes and awareness focusing on this odd woman in a sack-like dress of bondsman brown. She was looking now at the thing clutched in his hand. I've heard of such like. It would have killed me, not so. Paul had to swallow before he could speak. I was its target. But it was coming for me. Because you were moving. And he wondered, who is this creature? Then you saved my life. I saved both our lives. Seems like you could have let it have me and made your own escape. Who are you? The shut-out mates, housekeeper. How did you know where to find me? Your mother told me. I met her at the stairs to the weirding room down the hall. She pointed to her right. Your father's men are still waiting. Those will be Howard's men, he thought. We must find the operator of this thing. Go to my father's men. Tell them I've caught a hunter-seeker in the house and they're to spread out and find the operator. Tell them to seal off the house and its grounds immediately. They'll know how to go about it. The operator's sure to be a stranger among us. And he wondered, could it be this creature? But he knew it wasn't. The seeker had been under control when she entered. Before I do your bidding, Manling, I must cleanse the way between us. You've put a water burden on me that I'm not sure I care to support. But we Fremen pay our debts, be they black debts or white debts. And it's known to us that you've a traitor in your midst. Who it is, we cannot say, but we're certain sure of it. Mayhap there's the hand guided that flesh cutter. Paul absorbed this in silence. A traitor. Before he could speak, the odd woman whirled away and ran back toward the entry. He thought to call her back, but there was an air about her that told him she would resent it. She told him what she knew, and now she was going to do his bidding. The house would be swarming with Howard's men in a minute. His mind went to other parts of that strange conversation. Weirding room. He looked to his left, where she had pointed. We Fremen. So that was a Fremen. He paused for the mnemonic blink that would store the pattern of her face in his memory. Prune-wrinkled features darkly browned, blue-on-blue blue eyes without any white in them. He attached the label. The Shadout Mapes. Still gripping the shattered seeker, Paul turned back into his room, scooped up his shield belt from the bed with his left hand, swung it around his waist and buckled it as he ran back out and down the hall to the left. She'd said his mother was someplace down here. Stairs. A weirding room. What had the Lady Jessica to sustain her in her time of trial? Think you carefully on this Bene Gesserit proverb, and perhaps you will see. Any road followed precisely to its end leads precisely nowhere. Climb the mountain just a little bit to test that it's a mountain. From the top of the mountain, you cannot see the mountain. From Muad'Dib, Family Commentaries by the Princess Irulan. At the end of the south wing, 
Jessica found a metal stair spiraling up to an oval door. She glanced back down the hall, again up at the door. Oval, she wondered. What an odd shape for a door in a house. Through the windows beneath the spiral stair, she could see the great white sun of Arrakis moving on toward evening. Long shadows stabbed down the hall. She returned her attention to the stairs. Harsh side lighting picked out bits of dried earth on the open metalwork of the steps. Jessica put a hand on the rail, began to climb. The rail felt cold under her sliding palm. She stopped at the door, saw it had no handle, but there was a faint depression on the surface of it where a handle should have been. Surely not a palm lock, she told herself. A palm lock must be keyed to one individual's hand shape and palm lines. But it looked like a palm lock. And there were ways to open any palm lock, as she had learned at school. Jessica glanced back to make certain she was unobserved, placed her palm against the depression in the door. The most gentle of pressures to distort the lines, a turn of the wrist, another turn, a sliding twist of the palm across the surface. She felt the click, but there were hurrying footsteps in the hall beneath her. Jessica lifted her hand from the door, turned, saw Mapes come to the foot of the stairs. There are men in the great hall say they've been sent by the Duke to get young Master Paul, Mapes said. They've the Ducal signet, and the guard has identified them. She glanced at the door, back to Jessica. A cautious one, this Mapes, Jessica thought. That's a good sign. He's in the fifth room from this end of the hall, the small bedroom, Jessica said. If you have trouble waking him, call on Dr. Yui in the next room. Paul may require a wake-shot. Again, Mapes cast a piercing stare at the oval door, and Jessica thought she detected loathing in the expression. Before Jessica could ask about the door and what it concealed, Mapes had turned away, hurrying back down the hall. Howard certified this place, Jessica thought. There can't be anything too terrible in here. She pushed the door. It swung inward onto a small room with another oval door opposite. The other door had a wheel handle. An airlock, Jessica thought. She glanced down, saw a door prop fall into the floor of the little room. The prop carried Howard's personal mark. The door was left, propped open, she thought. Someone probably knocked the prop down accidentally, not realising the outer door would close on a palm lock. She stepped over the lip into the little room. Why an airlock in a house? she asked herself. And she thought suddenly of exotic creatures sealed off in special climates. Special climate? That would make sense on Arrakis, where even the driest of off-planet growing things had to be irrigated. The door behind her began swinging closed. She caught it and propped it open securely with a stick Howard had left. Again she faced the wheel-locked inner door, seeing now a faint inscription etched in the metal above the handle. She recognized Gallic words, read, O oh man, here is a lovely portion of God's creation. Then stand before it and learn to love the perfection of thy supreme friend. Jessica put her weight on the wheel. It turned left and the inner door opened. 
A gentle draught feathered her cheek, stirred her hair. She felt change in the air, a richer taste. She swung the door wide, looked through into massed greenery with yellow sunlight pouring across it. A yellow sun? she asked herself. Then, filter glass. She stepped over the sill and the door swung closed behind. A wet planet conservatory, she breathed. Potted plants and low-pruned trees stood all about. She recognized a mimosa, a flowering quince, a sondagi, green-blossomed plenicenta, green and white-striped acaso, roses, even roses. She bent to breathe the fragrance of a giant pink blossom, straightened to peer around the room. Rhythmic noise invaded her senses. She parted a jungle overlapping of leaves, looked through to the center of the room. A low fountain stood there, small with fluted lips. The rhythmic noise was a peeling, spooling arc of water falling thud a gallop onto the metal bowl. Jessica sent herself through the quick, sense-clearing regimen, began a methodical inspection of the room's perimeter. It appeared to be about ten meters square. From its placement above the end of the hall and from subtle differences in construction, she guessed it had been added onto the roof of this wing long after the original building's completion. She stopped at the south limits of the room in front of the wide reach of filter glass, stared around. Every available space in the room was crowded with exotic, wet climate plants. Something rustled in the greenery. She tensed, then glimpsed a simple, clock-set servoc with pipe and hose arms. An arm lifted, sent out a fine spray of dampness that misted her cheeks. The arm retracted, and she looked at what it had watered. A fern tree. Water everywhere in this room on a planet where water was the most precious juice of life, water being wasted so conspicuously that it shocked her to inner stillness. She glanced out at the filter-yellowed sun. It hung low on a jagged horizon above cliffs that formed part of the immense rock uplifting known as the Shield Wall. Filter glass, she thought, to turn a white sun into something softer and more familiar. Who could have built such a place? Leto? It would be like him to surprise me with such a gift, but there hasn't been time, and he's been busy with more serious problems. She recalled the report that many Arakeen houses were sealed by airlock doors and windows to conserve and reclaim interior moisture. Leto had said it was a deliberate statement of power and wealth for this house to ignore such precautions its doors and windows being sealed only against the omnipresent dust. But this room embodied a statement far more significant than the lack of water seals on outer doors. She estimated that this pleasure room used water enough to support a thousand persons on Arrakis, possibly more. Jessica moved along the window, continuing to stare into the room. The move brought into view a metallic surface at table height beside the fountain, and she glimpsed a white notepad and stylus there partly concealed by an overhanging fan leaf. She crossed to the table, noted Howard's day signs on it, studied a message written on the pad. To the Lady Jessica, may this place give you as much pleasure as it has given me. 
Please permit the room to convey a lesson we learned from the same teachers. The proximity of a desirable thing tempts one to overindulgence. On that path lies danger. My kindest wishes, Margot, Lady Fenring. Jessica nodded, remembering that Leto had referred to the Emperor's former proxy here as Count Fenring. But the hidden message of the note demanded immediate attention, couched as it was in a way to inform her the writer was another Bene Gesserit. A bitter thought touched Jessica in passing. The Count married his lady. Even as this thought flicked through her mind, she was bending to seek out the hidden message. It had to be there. The visible note contained the code phrase every Bene Gesserit not bound by a school injunction was required to give another Bene Gesserit when conditions demanded it. On that path lies danger. Jessica felt the back of the note, rubbed the surface for coded dots. Nothing. The edge of the pad came under her seeking fingers. Nothing. She replaced the pad where she had found it, feeling a sense of urgency. Something in the position of the pad? She wondered. But Howard had been over this room, doubtless had moved the pad. She looked at the leaf above the pad. The leaf! She brushed a finger along the undersurface, along the edge, along the stem. It was there! Her fingers detected the subtle, coded dots, scanned them in a single passage. Your son and the Duke are in immediate danger. A bedroom has been designed to attract your son. The H loaded it with death traps to be discovered, leaving one that may escape detection. Jessica put down the urge to run back to Paul. The full message had to be learned. Her fingers sped over the dots. I do not know the exact nature of the menace, but it has something to do with a bed. The threat to your duke involves defection of a trusted companion or lieutenant. The H planned to give you as gift to a minion. To the best of my knowledge, this conservatory is safe. Forgive that I cannot tell more. My sources are few, as my count is not in the pay of the H. In haste, M.F. Jessica thrust the leaf aside, whirled to dash back to Paul. In that instant, the airlock door slammed open. Paul jumped through it, holding something in his right hand, slammed the door behind him. He saw his mother, pushed through the leaves to her, glanced at the fountain, thrust his hand, and the thing it clutched under the falling water. Paul! She grabbed his shoulder, staring at the hand. What is that? He spoke casually but she caught the effort behind the tone. Hunter-seeker. Caught it in my room and smashed its nose. But I want to be sure. Water should short it out. Immerse it, she commanded. He obeyed. Presently, she said, Withdraw your hand. Leave the thing in the water. He brought out his hand, shook water from it, staring at the quiescent metal in the fountain. Jessica broke off a plant stem, prodded the deadly sliver. It was dead. She dropped the stem into the water, looked at Paul. His eyes studied the room with a searching intensity that she recognized the B.G. way. This place could conceal anything, he said. I've reason to believe it's safe, she said. My room was supposed to be safe too. Howard said it was a hunter-seeker she reminded him. That means someone inside the house to operate it. 
Seeker control beams have a limited range. The thing could have been spirited in here after Howard's investigation. But she thought of the message of the leaf. Defection of a trusted companion or lieutenant. Not Howard, surely. Oh, surely not Howard. Howard's men are searching the house right now, he said. That seeker almost got the old woman who came to wake me. The shut-out mapes, Jessica said, remembering the encounter at the stairs. A summons from your father to... That can wait, Paul said. Why do you think this room's safe? She pointed to the note, explained about it. He relaxed slightly. But Jessica remained inwardly tense, thinking, A hunter-seeker. Merciful mother. It took all her training to prevent a fit of hysterical trembling. Paul spoke matter-of-factly. It's the Harkonnens, of course. We shall have to destroy them. A rapping sounded at the airlock door, the code knock of one of Howard's corps. Come in, Paul called. The door swung wide and a tall man in a tradies uniform, with a Howard insignia on his cap, leaned into the room. There you are, sir, he said. The housekeeper said you'd be here. He glanced around the room. We found a cairn in the cellar and caught a man in it. He had a seeker consul. I'll want to take part in the interrogation, Jessica said. Sorry, my lady. We messed him up catching him. He died. Nothing to identify him? she asked. We found nothing yet, my lady. Was he an Arakeen native? Paul asked. Jessica nodded at the astuteness of the question. He has the native look, the man said. Put into that cairn more than a month ago, by the look, and left there to await our coming. Stone and mortar where he came through into the cellar were untouched when we inspected the place yesterday. I'll stake my reputation on it. No one questions your thoroughness, Jessica said. I question it, my lady. We should have used sonic probes down there. I presume that's what you're doing now, Paul said. Yes, sir. Send word to my father that we'll be delayed. At once, sir. He glanced at Jessica. It's how it's ordered that under such circumstances as these, the young master be guarded in a safe place. Again his eyes swept the room. What of this place? I've reason to believe it's safe, she said. Both Howard and I have inspected it. Then I'll mount guard outside here, milady, until we've been over the house once more. He bowed, touched his cap to Paul, backed out and swung the door closed behind him. Paul broke the sudden silence, saying, Had we better go over the house later ourselves? Your eyes might see things others would miss. This wing was the only place I hadn't examined, she said. I put it off to last, because... Because Howard gave it his personal attention, he said. She darted a quick look at his face, questioning. Do you distrust Howard? she asked. No, but he's getting old. He's overworked. We could take some of the load from him. That'd only shame him and impair his efficiency, she said. A stray insect won't be able to wander into this wing after he hears about this. He'll be shamed that we must take our own measures he said. Howard has served three generations of Atreides with honour, she said. He deserves every respect and trust we can pay him, many times over. Paul said, when my father is bothered by something you've done, he says, Benny Jesserit, like a swear word. And what is it about me that bothers your father? When you argue with him, you are not your father, Paul. And Paul thought, it'll worry her. 
but I must tell her what that Mapes woman said about a traitor among us. What are you holding back? Jessica asked. This isn't like you, Paul. He shrugged, recounted the exchange with Mapes, and Jessica thought of the message of the leaf. She came to a sudden decision, showed Paul the leaf, told him its message. My father must learn of this at once, he said. I'll radiograph it in code and get it off. No, she said. You will wait until you can see him alone. As few as possible must learn about it. Do you mean we should trust no one? There's another possibility, she said. This message may have been meant to get to us. The people who gave it to us may believe it's true, but it may be that the only purpose was to get this message to us. Paul's face remained sturdily sombre. To sow distrust and suspicion in our ranks, to weaken us that way, he said. You must tell your father privately, and caution him about this aspect of it, she said. I understand. She turned to the tall reach of filter glass, stared out to the southwest where the sun of Arrakis was sinking, a yellowed ball above the cliffs. Paul turned with her, said, I don't think it's Howard either. Is it possible it's Yui? He's not a lieutenant or companion, she said, and I can assure you he hates the Harkonnens as bitterly as we do. Paul directed his attention to the cliffs, thinking, and it couldn't be Gurney or Duncan. Could it be one of the sub-lieutenants? Impossible. They're all from families that have been loyal to us for generations, for good reason. Jessica rubbed her forehead, sensing her own fatigue. So much peril here. She looked out at the filter-yellowed landscape, studying it. Beyond the ducal grounds stretched a high-fenced storage yard, lines of spice silos in it with stilt-legged watchtowers standing around it like so many startled spiders. She could see at least twenty storage yards of silos reaching out to the cliffs of the shield wall. Silos repeated, stuttering across the basin. Slowly, the filtered sun buried itself beneath the horizon. Stars leaped out. She saw one bright star so low on the horizon that it twinkled with a clear, precise rhythm, a trembling of light. Blink, 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 blink. Paul stirred beside her in the dusky room. But Jessica concentrated on that single bright star, realizing that it was too low, that it must come from the shield wall cliffs. Someone signaling. She tried to read the message, but it was in no code she had ever learned. Other lights had come on down on the plain beneath the cliffs, little yellows spaced out against blue darkness, and one light off to their left grew brighter, began to wink back at the cliff very fast, blink, squirt, glimmer, blink, and it was gone. The false star in the cliff winked out immediately. Signals and they filled her with premonition. Why were lights used to signal across the basin? She asked herself. Why couldn't they use the communications network? The answer was obvious. The communinet was certain to be tapped now by agents of the Duke Leto. Light signals could only mean that messages were being sent between his enemies, between Harkonnen agents. There came a tapping at the door behind them, and the voice of Howard's man. 
All clear, sir, milady. Time to be getting the young master to his father. It is said that the Duke Leto blinded himself to the perils of Arrakis, that he walked heedlessly into the pit. Would it not be more likely to suggest he had lived so long in the presence of extreme danger, he misjudged a change in its intensity? Or is it possible he deliberately sacrificed himself that his son might find a better life? All evidence indicates the Duke was a man not easily hoodwinked. From Muad'Dib, Family Commentaries by the Princess Irulan. The Duke Leto Atreides leaned against a parapet of the landing control tower outside Arakeen. The night's first moon, an oblate silver coin, hung well above the southern horizon. Beneath it, the jagged cliffs of the shield wall shone like parched icing through a dust haze. To his left, the lights of Arakeen glowed in the haze, yellow, white, blue. He thought of the notices posted now above his signature all through the populous places of the planet. Our sublime Parishar Emperor has charged me to take possession of this planet and end all dispute. The ritualistic formality of it touched him with a feeling of loneliness. Who was fooled by that fatuous legalism? Not the Fremen, certainly. Nor the Houses Minor, who controlled the interior trade of Arrakis, and were Harkonnen creatures almost to a man. They have tried to take the life of my son. The rage was difficult to suppress. He saw lights of a moving vehicle coming toward the landing field from Arakeen. He hoped it was the guard and troop carrier bringing Paul. The delay was galling, even though he knew it was prompted by caution on the part of Howard's lieutenant. They have tried to take the life of my son. He shook his head to drive out the angry thoughts, glanced back at the field where five of his own frigates were posted around the rim like monolithic sentries. Better a cautious delay, than. The lieutenant was a good one, he reminded himself, a man marked for advancement, completely loyal. Our sublime Padishah Emperor. If the people of this decadent garrison city could only see the Emperor's private note to his noble duke, the disdainful allusions to veiled men and women. But what else is one to expect of barbarians, whose dearest dream is to live outside the ordered security of the Farfreluchas? The duke felt in this moment that his own dearest dream was to end all class distinctions and never again think of deadly order. He looked up and out of the dust at the unwinking stars, thought, Around one of those little lights circles Caladan, but I'll never again see my home. The longing for Caladan was a sudden pain in his breast. He felt that it did not come from within himself, but that it reached out to him from Caladan. He could not bring himself to call this dry wasteland of Arrakis his home, and he doubted he ever would. I must mask my feelings, he thought, for the boy's sake. If ever he's to have a home, this must be it. I may think of Arrakis as a hell I've reached before death, but he must find here that which will inspire him. There must be something. 
A wave of self-pity, immediately despised and rejected, swept through him, and for some reason he found himself recalling two lines from a poem Gurney Halleck often repeated. My lungs taste the air of time, blown past falling sands. Well, Gurney would find plenty of falling sands here, the Duke thought. The central wastelands beyond those moon-frosted cliffs were desert, barren rock, dunes and blowing dust, an uncharted dry wilderness with here and there along its rim, and perhaps scattered through it, knots of Fremen. If anything could buy a future for the Atreides line, the Fremen just might do it. Provided the Harkonnens hadn't managed to infect even the Fremen with their poisonous schemes. They have tried to take the life of my son. A scraping metal racket vibrated through the tower, shook the parapet beneath his arms. Blast shutters dropped in front of him, blocking the view. Shuttles coming in, he thought. Time to go down and get to work. He turned to the stairs behind him, headed down to the big assembly room, trying to remain calm as he descended, to prepare his face for the coming encounter. The men were already boiling in from the field when he reached the yellow-domed room. They carried their space bags over their shoulders, shouting and roistering like students returning from vacation. Hey, feel that under your dogs? That's gravity, man. How many G's does this place pull? Feels heavy. Nine-tenths of a G by the book. The crossfire of thrown words filled the big room. Did you get a good look at this hole on the way down? Where's all the loot this place is supposed to have? The Harkonnens took it with them. Me for a hot shower and a soft bed. Haven't you heard, stupid? No showers down here. You scrub your ass with sand. Hey, can it? The Duke. The Duke stepped out of the stair entry into a suddenly silent room. Gurney Halleck strode along at the point of the crowd, bag over one shoulder, the neck of his nine-string baliset clutched in the other hand. They were long-fingered hands with big thumbs, full of tiny movements that drew such delicate music from the baliset. The Duke watched Halleck, admiring the ugly lump of a man, noting the glass-splinter eyes with their gleam of savage understanding. Here was a man who lived outside the Faufreluches while obeying their every precept. What was it Paul had called him? Gurney the Valorous. Halleck's wispy blonde hair trailed across barren spots on his head. His wide mouth was twisted into a pleasant sneer, and the scar of the ink-vine whip slashed across his jawline seemed to move with a life of its own. His whole air was of casual, shoulder-set capability. He came up to the Duke, bowed. Gurney. My lord. He gestured with a baliset toward the men in the room. This is the last of them. I'd have preferred coming in with the first wave, but... There are still some Harkonnens for you. Step aside with me, Gurney, where we may talk. Years to command, my lord. They moved into an alcove beside a coil-slot water machine, while the men stirred restlessly in the big room. Halleck dropped his bag into a corner, kept his grip on the baliset. How many men can you let Hawat have? Is Stu Fear in trouble, sire? He's lost only two agents, but his advance men gave us an excellent line on the entire Harkonnen setup here. If we move fast, we may gain a measure of security, the breathing space we require. He wants as many men as you can spare, men who won't balk at a little knife work. I can let him have three hundred of my best. 
Where shall I send them? To the main gate. Hawat has an agent there waiting to take them. Shall I get about it at once, sire? In a moment. We have another problem. The field commandant will hold the shuttle here until dawn on a pretext. The guild highliner that brought us is going on about its business, and the shuttle's supposed to make contact with a cargo ship taking up a load of spice. Our spice, my lord? Our spice. But the shuttle also will carry some of the spice hunters from the old regime. They've opted to leave with the change of fief, and the judge of the change is allowing it. These are valuable workers, Gurney, about 800 of them. Before the shuttle leaves, you must persuade some of those men to enlist with us. How strong a persuasion, sire. I want their willing cooperation, Gurney. Those men have experience and skills we need. The fact that they're leaving suggests they're not part of the Harkonnen machine. Hawat believes there could be some bad ones planted in the group, but he sees assassins in every shadow. Thufir has found some very productive shadows in his time, my lord. And there are some he hasn't found. But I think planting sleepers in this outgoing crowd would show too much imagination for the Harkonnens. Possibly, sire. Where are these men? Down on the lower level in a waiting room. I suggest you go down and play a tune or two to soften their minds, then turn on the pressure. You may offer positions of authority to those who qualify. Offer 20% higher wages than they received under the Harkonnens. No more than that, sire? I know the Harkonnen pay scales, and to men with their termination pay in their pockets and the wanderlust on them, well, sire, 20% would hardly seem proper inducement to stay. Then use your own discretion in particular cases. Just remember that the treasury isn't bottomless. Hold it to 20% whenever you can. We particularly need spice drivers, weather scanners, dune men, any with open sand experience. I understand, sire. They shall come all for violence. Their faces shall sup up as the east wind, and they shall gather the captivity of the sand. A very moving quotation. Turn your crew over to a lieutenant. Have him give a short drill on water discipline, then bed the men down for the night in the barracks adjoining the field. Field personnel will direct them. And don't forget the men for Hawat. Three hundred of the best, sire. Gurney took up his space bag. Where shall I report to you when I've completed my chores? I've taken over a council room topside here. We'll hold staff there. I want to arrange a new planetary dispersal order with armored squads going out first. Halleck stopped in the act of turning away, caught Leto's eye. Are you anticipating that kind of trouble, sire? I thought there was a judge of the change here. Both open battle and secret. There'll be blood aplenty spilled here before we're through. And the water which thou takest out of the river shall become blood upon the dry land. <sighs> Hurry back, Gurney. Very good, my lord. Behold, as a wild ass in the desert, go I forth to my work. The whip scar rippled to his grin. He turned, strode to the center of the room, paused to relay his orders, hurried on through the men. Leto shook his head at the retreating back. Halleck was a continual amazement, a head full of songs, quotations, and flowery phrases, and the heart of an assassin when it came to dealing with the Harkonnens. Presently, Leto took a leisurely diagonal course across to the lift. 
acknowledging salutes with a casual hand wave. He recognized a propaganda corpsman, stopped to give him a message that could be relayed to the men through channels. Those who had brought their women would want to know the women were safe and where they could be found. The others would wish to know that the population here appeared to boast more women than men. The Duke slapped the propaganda man on the arm, a signal that the message had top priority to be put out immediately, then continued across the room. He nodded to the men, smiled, traded pleasantries with a subaltern. Command must always look confident, he thought. All that faith riding on your shoulders while you sit in the critical seat and never show it. He breathed a sigh of relief when the lift swallowed him, and he could turn and face the impersonal doors. They have tried to take the life of my son. Over the exit of the Erekine landing field, crudely carved as though with a poor instrument, there was an inscription that Muad'Dib was to repeat many times. He saw it that first night on Arrakis, having been brought to the Ducal Command Post to participate in his father's first full staff conference. The words of the inscription were a plea to those leaving Arrakis, but they fell with dark import on the eyes of a boy who had just escaped a close brush with death. They said... O oh, you who know what we suffer here, do not forget us in your prayers. From Manual of Muad'Dib by the Princess Irulan. The whole theory of warfare is calculated risk, the Duke said. But when it comes to risking your own family, the element of calculation gets submerged in other things. He knew he wasn't holding in his anger as well as he should, and he turned, strode down the length of the long table and back. The Duke and Paul were alone in the conference room at the landing field. It was an empty-sounding room, furnished only with a long table, old-fashioned three-legged chairs around it, and a map board and projector at one end. Paul sat at the table near the map board. He had told his father the experience with the hunter-seeker and given the reports that a traitor threatened him. The Duke stopped across from Paul, pounded the table, Howard told me that house was secure. Paul spoke hesitantly. I was angry too, at first, and I blamed Howard. But the threat came from outside the house. It was simple, clever, and direct. And it would have succeeded were it not for the training given me by you and many others, including Howard. Are you defending him? The Duke demanded. Yes. He's getting old. That's it. He should be... He's wise with much experience. Paul said. How many of Howard's mistakes can you recall? I should be the one defending him, the Duke said. Not you. Paul smiled. Leto sat down at the head of the table, put a hand over his son's. You've matured lately, son. He lifted his hand. It gladdens me. He matched his son's smile. Howard will punish himself. He'll direct more anger against himself over this than both of us together could pour on him. Paul glanced toward the darkened windows beyond the map board, looked at the night's blackness. Room lights reflected from a balcony railing out there. He saw movement and recognized the shape of a guard in a Treides uniform. Paul looked back at the white wall behind his father, then down to the shiny surface of the table, seeing his own hands clenched into fists there. 
The door opposite the Duke banged open. Thufir Howard strode through it, looking older and more leathery than ever. He paced down the length of the table, stopped at attention, facing Leto. My lord, he said, speaking to a point over Leto's head. I have just learned how I failed you. It becomes necessary that I tender my resignation. Oh, sit down and stop acting the fool, the Duke said. He waved the chair across from Paul. If you made a mistake, it was in overestimating the Harkonnens. Their simple minds came up with a simple trick. We didn't count on simple tricks. And my son has been a great pains to point out to me that he came through this largely because of your training. You didn't fail there. He stabbed the back of the empty chair. Sit down, I say. Howat sank into the chair. But I'll hear no more of it, the Duke said. The incident is past. We have more pressing business. Where are the others? I asked them to wait outside while I call them in. Howard looked into Leto's eyes. Sire, I... I know who my true friends are, Thufir, the Duke said. Call in the men. Howard swallowed. At once, my lord. He swiveled in the chair, called to the open door. Gurney, bring them in. Halleck led the file of men into the room. The staff officers, looking grimly serious, followed by the younger aides and specialists, an air of eagerness among them. Brief scuffing sounds echoed around the room as the men took seats. A faint smell of rachag stimulant wafted down the table. "'There's coffee for those who want it,' the Duke said. He looked over his men, thinking, "'They're a good crew. A man could do far worse for this kind of war.' He waited while coffee was brought in from the adjoining room and served noting the tiredness in some of the faces. Presently he put on his mask of quiet efficiency, stood up and commanded their attention with a knuckle rap against the table. Well, gentlemen, he said, our civilization appears to have fallen so deeply into the habit of invasion that we cannot even obey a simple order of the Imperium without the old ways cropping up. Dry chuckles sounded around the table and Paul realised that his father had said the precisely correct thing, in precisely the correct tone to lift the mood here. Even the hint of fatigue in his voice was right. "'I think first we'd better learn if Thufir has anything to add to his report on the Fremen,' the Duke said. "'Thufir?' Howard glanced up. "'I've some economic matters to go into after my general report, sire, but I can say now that the Fremen appear more and more to be the allies we need.' They're waiting now to see if they can trust us, but they appear to be dealing openly. They've sent us a gift. Steel suits of their own manufacture. Maps of certain desert areas surrounding strong points the Harkonnens left behind. He glanced down at the table. Their intelligence reports have proved completely reliable and have helped us considerably in our dealings with the judge of the change. They've also sent some incidental things. Jewellery for the Lady Jessica, spice liquor, candy, medicinals... My men are processing the lot right now. There appears to be no trickery. You like these people, Thufir? asked a man down the table. Howard turned to face his questioner. Duncan Idaho says they're to be admired. Paul glanced at his father, back to Howard, ventured a question. Have you any new information on how many Fremen there are? Howard looked at Paul. From food processing and other evidence... Idaho estimates the cave complex he visited consisted of some ten thousand people, all told. Their leader said he ruled a ch of two thousand hearths, 
We've reason to believe there are a great many such CH communities. All seem to give their allegiance to someone called Liet. That's something new, Leto said. It could be an error on my part, sire. There are things to suggest this Liet may be a local deity. Another man down the table cleared his throat, asked, Is it certain they deal with the smugglers? A smuggler caravan left this Siege while Idaho was there, carrying a heavy load of spice. They used pack beasts and indicated they faced an eighteen-day journey. It appears, the Duke said, that the smugglers have redoubled their operations during this period of unrest. This deserves some careful thought. We shouldn't worry too much about unlicensed frigates working off our planet. It's always done. But have them completely outside our observation, that's not good. You have a plan, sir? Howard asked. The Duke looked at Halleck. Gurney, I want you to head a delegation, an embassy, if you will, to contact these romantic businessmen. Tell them I'll ignore their operations as long as they give me a ducal tithe. Howard here estimates that graft and extra fighting men heretofore required in their operations have been costing them four times that amount. What if the Emperor gets wind of this? Halleck asked. He's very jealous of his chome profits, my lord. Leto smiled. We'll bank the entire tithe openly in the name of Shaddam the Fourth, and deduct it legally from our levy support costs. Let the Harkonnens fight that. And we'll be ruining a few more of the locals who grew fat under the Harkonnen system. No more graft. A grin twisted Halleck's face. Ah, my lord, a beautiful low blow. Would that I could see the Baron's face when he learns of this.'